I need to do a little research on that song. Come you think come you thankful people come. I, I need to research it because it's talking about corn and ears. That's way, way North American. Well, that, that's not necessarily because of the ratio. Um, when they talk about corn in Britain, it's wheat. Okay. Seems it seems right. Um when we read corn in the King James, we think here in America, maize. We think uh, Indian corn and um, not in the ancient world. That it wouldn't be that thing that we're feeding catfish now, you know, that grows so easily here. That we're putting in our cars. <laughs> well, hey, it's great to be with you tonight. We're doing a special uh, for Thanksgiving I generally do not like to track the secular culture in their celebrations or otherwise, but I consider this particular holiday to be so distinctive in our founding and our heritage, really more central to who we should be than the 4th of July or any of the, the celebrations of our veterans or, their, or the Memorial Day, um, memorializing what God did despite the horrors of death and chaos for the pilgrims, um, is not because of our circumstances, but because of our Creator, we celebrate and we give thanks. And um, so tonight's a special, we're calling tonight's message, Gratitude as the Measure of Christian Perspective. The Measure of Christian Perspective. And when I say measure, hopefully you're aware that that's going to be uh, somewhat challenging a few things we'd like to accomplish tonight would include, what is the New Testament? How does it say thanksgiving? How does it, how, what are the words for giving of thanks? And the beauty of how that's expressed in Greek, given all that we know of God's blessings and God's grace, I think is a, is a very captivating thing. So my intention is tonight to equip you for tomorrow and for the rest of your life to give thanks to God for his wonderful bounty of the cross, of the resurrection, of his righteousness imputed to you, of the eternal life God has already given you, of the foretaste of that eternal life in the giving of the Holy Spirit, of the promised resurrection body and all that God has included in his inheritance package that he is waiting when his perfect timing to deliver to us in its fullness. We have so much constantly to be grateful for. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship with God. If you need, 1 John 1, 9 is God's grace afforded to believers for cleansing from sin. Challenge you to do that always, anytime there is an awareness of personal sin. Or if you're not aware, think about it. Self-evaluate because what we're doing requires the work of the Spirit of God in us. Let's pray. Our Father, we come tonight to your throne of grace to ask your help that we would understand you and how we should relate to you. We're always being refined by your word to think your thoughts after you. In the world in which we live, Father, every decision we make is to be an application of the precious word of God. 
And in that application, there is the constant exhale of thanksgiving, giving thanks to you for who you are, for revealing yourself to us, for giving us your son so that we could have eternal life with you and with him. Father, for the future that awaits us, given the circumstances and trials that we're facing today, we must give thanks constantly, and we're commanded to. So I ask you to strengthen us to that purpose tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Start tonight with an image. I'm told that you're not supposed to break out Christmas carols until Thanksgiving, so apologies to those legalists who think that way. We just sang a Thanksgiving carol. (laughs) I love Christmas music. Well, this is a classic, the classic Christmas novel in English, and everyone knows that it is, of course, a reference to A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Anybody know when this was written? I didn't either until I looked it up. It's 1843. Dickens writes A Christmas Carol. That's an interesting fact. Putting it on the map of history of the 19th century, you know, 15 years before the war for independence, or the war between the states, sorry, the war of northern aggression, or the Civil War as we call it. Uh, Christmas Carol is describing a world um, and characters that are very compelling to us and everyone who reads it or encounters it in whatever whatever play form or in movies. We all kind of get the message. It was written by a man who denied the deity of Christ. You can read about his denial of the deity of Christ in his book, uh, The Life of Our Lord, where he tells the stories of the Gospels for children to understand. And the way he describes where Jesus came from and who he is would not ever lead anyone to know God the Son, our Savior, uh, as he has been revealed in the Gospels. But you would know a lot of the, the contents of the stories of the Gospels. And what you have in A Christmas Carol, as you all know from the culture, is a very charming story of redemption that everyone loves. It's got ghosts or spirits. It's got a good villain who becomes a hero. What a great arc for a character. It has retribution for one's own wicked choices and the consequences of those choices. One of the great pictures of of this character, Scrooge, is that he is, he's a product of his own greed, his own wickedness. He's rich in money, but the richer he has become, the more of a shell of a husk of a human he's become. And everyone pities him, who takes a moment to think about his dialogue with Cratchit. One of my favorite things in all of English literature is when Cratchit asks for the day off for Christmas and Scrooge's diatribe about what Christmas is and how, how everyone thinks they're entitled to a day off. I think it's, it's, it's very funny. Well, the story of how Dickens came up with this, he wrote this in six weeks and was needing a hit. He needed a win. He started writing in October. And um, um, it may be his most beloved thing, the most universally known thing, where people, whether they know Dickens or not, they know about the Scrooge character and this, this arc of this character. Um, there is an earlier version of it. I believe it's a version of the story because it's exactly the same kind of thing. An elderly man is a villain who has supernatural encounters 
written in 1836, Supernatural Encounters, where they show him the past and the present and the future, and he has a change of heart because of how awful he sees that he himself is, and he wants to be a nice person and help people as a consequence. He hurts little kids in the beginning, and he becomes um, a, a saint at the end in his behavior. And it's just moral reformation. It's both stories. It's moral reformation. The earlier short story is called The Story of the Goblins Who Stole a Sexton. And the character's name is not Ebenezer Scrooge. It's Gabriel Grubb. Has anyone ever heard this story? The, the Goblins and Gabriel Grubb? It's a great story. But it's, it's the same story in a way. And he cleaned it up. He took the goblins out, brought the three spirits in. And, and so Dickens has had this in his mind. He had this in his mind for 10 years as he's thinking about what we want. When you read the life of our Lord, again, Charles Dickens says we want to be good people. God wants us to be good. And the idea that he has is humanistic, secular reform of the individual moral character. And that's not the gospel, and it's not even Christian. But one of the benefits of the gospel is the fruit of the Spirit, obviously, and something much better than be a good person awaits the character of the believer who constantly looks to Jesus Christ. But there is no Christianity without Christ, and Scrooge is a sweet, sweet fella at the end when he's no longer uh, cursing the children or whatever, he's blessing them. What I want to point to, though, that we all, the reason the story resonates with us is that Scrooge gets to see himself where he didn't before. He sees his past, he sees his past mistakes, he sees the present things of what people think about him, and he sees the future of a, of a tragic person that no one cares about because of the wicked jerk that he is. And he gets something that really is the great blessing that the Word of God gives us. The reason this resonates with us is because we can see Scrooge as observers, but he doesn't see himself. But when the three spirits get hold of him, and Marley, he sees himself, and it changes his perspective. And seeing what a stinker he is and how sad it is that Tiny Tim's going to die pretty soon changes him. Something snaps. This is Christmas uh, fiction. This is the idea of Christmas fiction. Dr. Seuss did it too. The Grinch. What's interesting in the Grinch story is they're having Thanksgiving, even though they don't have any presents. They're still standing around whatever Davu Dores means, they're standing around singing for joy because it's not about the gifts, right, and, and all that stuff. And there's been a change of perspective when he sees that, and there's been a witness. And so, boy, I, I love to insert the gospel in these stories where it belongs because it's the real cause for rejoicing. What are these who's standing around holding hands singing about? They've got Christmas, welcome Christmas, Christmas is here. Well, you mean Jesus Christ came to die for our sins because we're such wretches? That's, that's really the gospel, as you know. And so um, when, you, when, you, when you look at, I'm not throwing away the Christmas carol, I love it. A Christ, I love it. But what's great about it is the change of perspective that Scrooge gets. And I have that experience every time I go to the well of God's word and he shows me who I am and he shows me who God is and he shows me who he wants me to be. And I have that thing that John Adams talked about of imagine yourself, but imagine the version of you that's virtuous. Imagine a virtuous version of yourself that thinks like you should think and wants what you should want. And once you have that idea of yourself, then seek to strive to, to be that person 
I can only do that through God's word and the power of God's spirit. He shows me my savior. And so the perspective issue is really the theme of most of the Christmas fiction is a change of perspective. And they keep telling the story. They did it in the early 2000s with Nicolas Cage. They did a movie called The Family Man. It's the same thing. He doesn't appreciate what he has. He learns what it'd be like if he wasn't around and if he didn't have the things that he has. And then all he wants is the things that he has. He doesn't have perspective. So my question is, as we get started, when must we give thanks according to the scriptures? Moving from pop culture and the best you could do as an unbelieving secular culture about being good boys and girls. What does the gospel say about when we must give thanks? It says all the time. Do not be, good, be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, even on Christmas or New Year's. Do not be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. With the result that you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with the result that you're singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, with the result that you're always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, with the result that you're subject to one another in the fear of Christ. All these result participles pointing back to the filling of the Spirit. If you're walking by the Spirit, then you are responsible by God's Word to give thanks to God for all things at all times because of the context of your life that you have the Holy Spirit, that you have eternal life, that you have a relationship with God, that God has made you twice. He made you in his, as, in his image, and then he made you new in Christ. So what I want to do now is look at how the New Testament actually talks about thanksgiving. I didn't do the etymology. You can do that sometime. I could do it some other time. I don't really remember. I've, I've looked it up before where the word thanks comes from, thank that is not from uh, either the Greek or the Latin, as far as I know. Um, and it's really neat. When you're translating the Bible and you come across a passage that in English just jumps out at you, give thanks or give thanksgiving or something, or I thank God, it doesn't, you have to think. There's a, there's a word that's very common to us in our theology that is the basis for all the words for thanksgiving. So actually, I'm going to show you four of the main ones. And the way I got this search, this study, was I did a little concordance work, and I asked the concordance in my English Bible, because it's, a, it's an English phenomenon, this word thanks and thanksgiving. I'll see if I can, maybe I can pull it up and show you. I asked the English Bible every time the word thank or thanks or thanksgiving or gratitude or grateful came up in the English and then I looked in that list of verses in the Greek and said, what are the Greek words that are being translated thanks and thanksgiving? It's a pretty straightforward search, and I might be able to show it to you. It's kind of fun to be able to do it. I really enjoy doing it. All right. Bear with me to see if I can share my screen. I heard that. that, that. There it is. You can see the screen. Okay, so here's... Here's a workspace, and I'll just grab a search real quick. And it's all I want to see is just the search window. All right, and I'm going to search in the Bible, and I'm going to search the New American Standard Bible because it's almost an interlinear. And then I'm going to say thanks or thanksgiving. Oops, I'm going to type it correctly. Uh, or gratitude, or help me out. What else? 
thanks, thanksgiving, um, grateful, or am I missing any? Let's go, thankfully. I don't know if that's in there, maybe. Adverb. Okay, that, that's a pretty good sample, right? Of, of, and so what, this is why we have computers. This is actually what they're for. And when you search that, you uh, could get the whole Bible on those words, but I want the New Testament for this study because I'm doing the Greek. I'm asking that question of the New Testament. And there's my list. I got 126 uh, times in 66 verses. That's what I got in my other search at home. And you end up with this English over here, all these English verses, and the Greek words are highlighted sympathetically over here. Now, this, this work that I just did was possible 40 years ago. All the tools existed to do this, but it would have taken six or seven hours to come up with that list or, or something like longer than 14 seconds. But since I can show you that this is possible and at the, tip of, at the t- tips of your fingers, and it's listed in a canonical order, so all these words are the different words that we just looked up and the Greek words behind them. And my plan is now to show you what those Greek words look like and, and, and how they're used. I hope the tension is mounting. Like, what is going to happen with this stuff? What are we going to learn? Teach, teach us something we didn't know. The first word is a verb. It's eucharisteo. Eucharisteo, I've spelled it up there in English, E-U-C-H-A-R-I-S-T-E-O, is the dictionary form, which is the first person singular present active indicative from Eucharisteo. And that word in that form would be translated, I give thanks. And it's you, E-U, that, that prefix or that portion of a word means good, like euphonium. The euphonium is a good instrument, I guess, or good sound. Um, Eulogy, a good word you say about someone when they die. You sabaya, good worship. Um, translated godly, but you plus sabaya, good plus worship. But, but it's eucharisteo, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, because I'm transliterating the chi, the key with C-H, charis. This is grace. We always translate that word grace. And it means to good grace someone. The verb form, it's a verb. So good plus grace and then to good grace. Translated thanks. Think about that. Correctly translated give thanks. To good grace our God. We thank our God. We good grace our God. It's the most common of those. That list It's the most common word in the list. I think 40 of those 66 are eucharisteo. I mentioned Matthew 26, verses 26 and 27. Anybody know what passage that is? Well, that's the Eucharist. (laughs) Eucharisteo in the Eucharist, which says, Now while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after giving thanks, aorist participle preceding the action of the main verb, after giving thanks, he broke it and gave to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And taking the cup also after giving thanks. Now, in your um, King James, it says give thanks. In your New American Standard, it says he blessed. Because eulogeo and eucharisteo are transposed. So the older Alexandrian texts say eulogeo. The majority of texts say eucharisteo. I think it's he gave thanks both times. 
After giving thanks, he broke it. And after taking the cup, also after giving thanks, he gave to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. And then verse 28 tells you the whole thing about it is in his blood, the new covenant in his blood. But he gives thanks, or eucharisto, he good graces the Father. This is like the word bless when applied to God. When you bless God, and it happens all through the Bible. That's not what you think it means to bless God. Oh, I'm just going to bless your heart, God. I'm, I'm going to set you right up. No, that's not what it means. Bless is to verbally proclaim something good about someone or to someone, to say a good, healthy word to someone. It's a blessing. And it's always verbal. So when you're praising God or thanking him, this is, what, this is in that realm of blessing. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And that's the way this works. To good grace God is to give thanks for him, which is to say your grace to me is good. It's to thank him or to express I recognize the grace you've given me. And so I'm saying this about you, about your grace I have received and I am blessed and I'm graced out. It is a recognition of the grace of God toward the person. That's what thanksgiving in the Greek is. You've given me good grace and I acknowledge it, I recognize it. The verbs in the Bible that describe our most important relationships with God, like faith, like believing, like to pistuo and aman in the Hebrew, to give thanks, these are words that we have to sort of work on a little bit to understand them in English. For example, in Hebrew, to, to, to believe in God is aman in the hifil stem to cause someone to be faithful. It's a causative stem in Hebrew, and it, it means to cause the person that's the object of faith to be faithful. And you don't cause God to be anything, but that's what we do to God. We amon him in the hifil stem. And so how is it possible that that linguistic idiom of causative works with us toward God? Well, it's that you're recognizing his faithfulness in yourself. I mean, you yourself are recognizing his faithfulness. So you're causing yourself to acknowledge his faithfulness, and that is faith. That is what it means in the Old Testament, and that's how it's used in the New Testament. That's why it's hard sometimes to tell if we're talking about when it says pistuo or pistis, is it the object of faith or the faith that recognizes the faithfulness of that object? Is, it, is, it, is God the faith, or is it my faith in trusting in him? And you want to really be careful about that because the way we approach Christ is not with our faithfulness. Oh, I'm faithful. I mean, no, I bring nothing. God is the faithful one, and I'm trusting in him. And that you have to think about that, and it's one of these little secrets in Bible translation people don't know. But it, to me, it really helps with the theology. That the, the base meaning of pistuo or of aman in Hebrew, faith, is God's faithfulness. That's the base meaning. And what we do with that is recognize it in him. And we're trusting in him. He's the faithful one. He's the anchor. We're the ones otherwise adrift. But the Eucharist is the place where Jesus gives thanks for the food and the, the bread and the cup. And that's why it's called the Eucharist because the Eucharist, oh, he gives thanks. In Luke 17, we have to tell the story of the one um, Samaritan that came back to give thanks. And we'll read it together. It says, while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. 
When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. So he does it without touching them. He does it for a distance since the second cleansing of lepers in, Matthew, in, in Luke, in the gospel of Luke. So this impossible task that's never been done except with Moses when he prayed for Miriam or when he pulled his own hand out, had leprosy, put it back in, and they pulled it back out. It didn't have leprosy. The, the last person that cured leprosy was Moses, all right, in terms of healing. And so you have uh, something that's never been done, but Moses said, when this gets done, go to the priests, and Jesus refers to that. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, uh, I'm sorry, Elijah, I'm sorry, Elisha uh, uh, and, and, the, and Naaman, but, but very rarely, I mean. One of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. He was a Samaritan. He was eulogeo, or sorry, he was eucharisto. He was giving thanks to him. That's that word that is the word for giving thanks. He was giving grace, or he was having good grace toward Christ. He was recognizing the grace that he had received. Grace is a gift, and you're saying thank you when you receive a gift. That's the idea. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed, but nine But the nine, where are they? And you know the story. Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this Samaritan, this foreigner? It doesn't say everyone was a Samaritan. It just points out that the one that came back was a Samaritan. He was untouchable before he had leprosy. And now he's double untouchable. But actually, when God cleanses him and heals him, he is the one who comes back to worship and to give thanks. And Jesus said to the leper, Stand up and go, your faith has made you well. So this is an example of this word to give thanks. And it's one of the most important examples because it's shocking in the Gospels that they didn't come back and give thanks. And the one that did was a, was a no good, rejected category, as, the, uh, as Luke is emphasizing here. The second way that eucharisteo is used, oh, before I go there, I want to talk about John 6. Do I have it? No, I don't. I want to talk about John 6 in the first use in Eucharisto. It's the most common one, and I think it's very helpful in John 6, verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. This is the feeding of the 5,000 men, plus however many women and children were present, in the miracle of John 6. I want you to notice that Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Who did he give thanks to? Andrew got the little boy's lunch, and so he thanked the little boy for the lunch? No. This is why we say thank you to God in prayer before we eat, because Jesus is always doing this, and it's what Paul says we're supposed to do. In fact, when you pray before you eat to give thanks to the one who gave you the food, You're setting that food apart. You're sanctifying it through prayer. That's what the Apostle Paul says. And uh, this should be something that happens every time we take in food. We should be giving our thanks to God. That's what it's for. And so I just, in passing, as we discuss this, think about tomorrow, think about your culture, think about the world you live in. I've heard people say, you don't have to pray for the food. You don't have to thank God before you eat. I've heard people try to say that. It's the same people that say you don't have to pray in Jesus' name. Well, 
you actually do have to pray in Jesus' name, especially when you're giving thanks to the Father at all times for all things in the name of the Son. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, if you absolutely do. I mean, you're commanded to be filled by the Spirit, and this is to be a result of that. So I'd say it's a command by extension. So yes, we do have to pray in Jesus' name if we're going to pray to the Father. It's in the name of the Son that we go to the Father, and there's a lot of that in Hebrews 9. But also, you do need to pray over the food. You need to thank God for the food every time. And I want to challenge you as believers in Christ and the flock here at Preston City Bible Church that thanking God for the food in the presence of others, well, they don't believe the same way. It's okay. They don't have to believe the same way. Bear witness to the world of your gratitude to God for his provision. You don't know what happens in the hearts of people when they see your faith expressed. And it doesn't violate Jesus' instructions to pray in secret so your Father will bless you in secret. It doesn't violate that for you to pray in the presence of others when you are thanking God for the food. It is a very important part of our Christian witness in our culture, I contend, that we're constantly faithful and thankful to God for the food. And while the lunchroom cafeteria, the school cafeteria food may not be something that you would particularly give thanks for, I think the little children, the little Christians out there in the world trying to be missionaries in a broken system, they ought to uh, give thanks for their food. They should tell God they're grateful for the food, and they should face the consequences, whatever those are, for saying thank you to God in the name of Jesus for his provision. All right. The second use is, oh, I don't want to go to the second one yet. I'm sorry. I'm still stuck on eucharisteo. Eucharisteo is Romans one twenty one. They didn't acknowledge God as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations. The passage that teaches you about man's independence from God, that, that's par excellence, that's showing the decline of the human race in all civilizations because of the fall and the consequent sin in us, and the sin manifests itself in our fleshly independence from God, our rejection of him as our creator. It manifests itself most magnificently in man's ingratitude. The wrath of God in Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has, has been made, so they're without excuse. And that is, that's, that's to say that the cosmological argument actually has some traction. That there is anything is evidence that there's someone that did that. And, they're, they, and, and that's supposed to stimulate us to say, I want to know him. I want to know that, what, 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 the person that caused that. For even though, and here's our target verse, the, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their, their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a line, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason... God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And 
what's he doing in Romans 1? He's establishing that the whole human race is under the corruption of Adam's fall. So he gets, he's building an argument that gets you to complete need for every human being in Romans 3.23. And he's showing you this is the pagan world. This is the state of all of the human race. And there's a, there's a decline. There's a, there's a sequence of decline that he's describing. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to those, do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They, do, they not only do the same, but also in the elementary school hallways with posters written by adults. They also give hearty approval to those who practice them. See, we, are, we look like the pagan world now as our civilization. Post-Christian, as you know, civilization. And this, this kicked off, this moral decline kicked off with ingratitude. I, I always say, based on Romans one twenty one, the very soul of unbelief is ingratitude. And when I'm ungrateful, I'm looking like an unbeliever because I'm not trusting in the things of God that he's told me. And that's a great challenge for all of us. Echo plus charis is another common way Thanksgiving is mentioned in the New Testament. Echo is the stock word for to have. Imagine the English language, the verb to have. I have, he has, I will have, I will have had. Uh, I would have had, had I had what I would have had. You know, that, that verb to have is a very important verb in all languages. All right? Avoir, en français. What is have in Spanish? To have. Tango. Ah, yo, tango. I have need to remember that. This is your stock word for have, and it's pronounced echo, like the thing that happens when you scream across a canyon. Echo. And um, it's E-C-H-O uh, because of the he in between the E and the O. And then you have the word for grace, charis. And um, not charis, charis is the name, is that, that's the name. And it means to have grace. I have grace is how it's said. That's the, Hebrew, that's the Greek idiom that will be translated, I give thanks. I have grace. I have gratitude. And hopefully you can hear in the word gratitude, the word grace, that's where it comes from because the Greek gave the Latin, um, the Greek charis becomes gratia in Latin. And so I'm having grace, I'm having gratitude. That's, that's the connection in our language to this tradition. It goes from charis in Greek again, charis to gratia in Latin. I have grace towards someone. In 1 Timothy 1.12 and 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Literally, I have grace to, in the dative, to the Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. So he's, he's in the section in the first chapter of 1 Timothy listing his prayer. And he's, he does this in his epistles. Most of them, he says what he's praying for. And he starts with thanksgiving, and then he goes to petition. And that's the pattern, by the way. We start with thanksgiving. Then we go to petition. We start with thanksgiving so that we have perspective. Then we go to our requests for others and ourselves because we then have the right perspective. And so Paul thanks Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the only places that you can find someone in prayer directly addressing the second person of the Trinity in the New Testament. 
I'll say it again, one of the only places that you can find in the New Testament someone directly addressing the second person of the Trinity in prayer. Some people only ever pray to Jesus. It's how they learn. It's, you know, dear Jesus. And, you know, and, and that's tradition and culture. But if you look to the New Testament, almost every prayer, almost every verbal address to the divine is to the Father in the name of the Son. Almost everyone. And so I'm not saying you shouldn't pray to Jesus. I'm saying let's probably be in proportion. The big thing, the big thing is that the Son operating on orders from his Father, has brought us near to the Father. And in the throne of grace, Jesus is not seated front and center. He's to the right, at the right hand of the Father, our left, as we face that throne. And so there is a difference in person between the Father and the Son. And just as soon as I say that, remember, we have one God in three persons, where one is that there are three persons who are the one God. So I wouldn't stress it too much. But I think Christ Jesus, our Lord, occurs only here. The other place, Paul calls out to the Lord three times in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And in your Bible, if you've got a red-letter Bible, what, what the Lord says back is in red letters because usually kurios, the Lord, is the way Paul talks about the second person of the Trinity. All three persons are Yahweh, are the Lord, but Paul usually, when he says the Lord or our Lord, like he does here, he's talking about the second person of the Trinity. In 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God... Theos, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. So notice in both of these, he's talking about service when he gives thanks to God as he's talking to Timothy. And that's not an accident because in both he's trying, or he's, I'm sorry, Paul is in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit perfectly and successfully communicating the model that would be for all who would serve that it's a privilege to, and it's part of our, when we think of the service we've been given, part of our package that we give God thanks for, that we're grateful. It's God's grace that we are permitted to serve, that he strengthened us in chapter one of 1 Timothy. He considered us faithful and put us into service, that we serve God with a clear conscience as constantly remember those that we serve in our prayers. So echo plus charis, to have grace, is a common way the New Testament talks about thanksgiving. Charis plus the dative article plus the dative of person. What that means is that we're saying grace to someone. Grace to, and it's translated, I th- or thanks be to God. It's translated, thanks be to God, but it's literally charis to the Lord. Grace to the Lord, and so we have to put to be grace be to the Lord to put a verb into it. So that's what I'm trying to show you with the with the um, the confusing hieroglyphics up here. Grace plus the indirect uh, object uh, uh, case, the dative plus the dative of the person. So the article plus the person. So grace be to the Lord or grace be to God. That's how it shows up. In, um, in the text. And you've got that in Romans 6, 17, 2 Corinthians 8, 16, 9, 15, and 1 Corinthians 15, 57, which I'll show you. In Romans 16, 7, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. But he says, but grace be to God. Grace to God that you were slaves of sin. We reflect back the grace of God that he shared with us in freeing us from our sin that we are grateful to him for it. It's a direct reflection of the grace we've received. See, why are you grateful? 
that we were slaves of sin before, but we became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which we were committed. And 2 Corinthians 8.16, but thanks be to God who puts that same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. So without looking at the context, because we're doing a, a thematic thing here, he's talking about the work of Titus and his attitude toward these Corinthians. And there is gratitude that we should have for God's work in Titus toward them. Look at how Titus is concerned for you, and you can be grateful for that. But it's the grace of God that draws your thanks. It's grace, 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 all through the passages that talk about thanksgiving. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Anybody know 2 Corinthians 9, what we were talking about there? Anybody know what that's about? It concludes on this exclamation, grace be to God or thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know what 2 Corinthians 9 is about? For God loveth a cheerful giver. This is the I'm coming to you for an offering and I'm bringing people along that are going to, you've already pledged what you were going to give and you want to get that ready so it doesn't seem awkward or that it's a matter of covetousness. We don't want to have to ask for it and just setting you up before we bring the people from Macedonia. You read it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's that passage that says, he who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. And it's your kind of giving passage that we don't give under compulsion or of necessity for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. That thing concludes with thanks be to God. Grace be to God for his indescribable gift. And I did it out of order because 1 Corinthians 15, 57 is a more universal statement of the grace of God in our gratitude. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. On the conclusion of the passage of the resurrection, the promise that drives every step of our lives, that this life is a transitory phase headed towards a permanent situation of the resurrection where we will be like the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection body. Thanks be to God. But, it's lit, but in Greek, it's saying grace be to God. I'm reflecting the grace I've already received and my appropriate response of what we'll call gratitude or thanksgiving. In other words, in every one of these cases, it's pretty obvious that there's been a prior act of God that draws from us gratitude. And that answers the question why we're not grateful. Why are we not grateful? Because we're not looking at those things that God has already done. We're looking at something else that is drawing our attention away from the grace and the riches of God that he's given us. So we now, the fourth of, of four that I wanted to show you that pretty much sew up the way those words, thanks and thanksgiving, gratitude, and all those are, are coming out of the New Testament, is Eucharistia. Eucharistia, E-U-C-H-A-R-I-S-T-I-A. Eucharistia. What do you think that is? It's a noun. And how would you know? Because it says up there on the board, it says a noun. <laughs> Come on now. Eucharistia is a noun. And it is good, you plus charis, grace. And it becomes the noun form that eucharisteo is the verb to good grace someone. You've done good toward me and I'm acknowledging that. 
You've done a gracious work that I didn't earn or deserve. Eucharistia is good plus the concept of grace or the, the word grace, and it means that a good grace has been done, and so I have a response of thankfulness. So I'm taking the giving thanks into a nominal form, and it's now thanksgiving. This would be the stock uh, glossary, thanksgiving. So happy thanksgiving. It's from the word Eucharistia in Philippians 4, 6 and 1 Corinthians 9. So first Philippians 4, 6 and 7, which you probably know is the relief parachute. It's the emergency relief valve in the trouble. Be anxious for nothing, summary command, prohibition, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Prayer is talking to God. Supplication is making urgent, specific requests that are, are in that conversation, that talking to God. So, you, so that's why it says prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, don't start right in with your supplications without giving thanks because in my prayer, I need perspective to think about who I'm talking to, for example. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The word thanksgiving there is eucharistia, that recognition of the good grace we've received. The basis for thanksgiving is the truth of God's grace that we've received. And if we don't have an overwhelming sense of gratitude toward God, it's because our perspective needs an adjustment to be looking at those things that God has done for us. Thanksgiving in the Old and New Testaments is always based on what God has done in the past, his promises and his deliverance. And we look to those things and we thank him And we live our lives going forward with that memory, with that perspective. And again, it's the matter of perspective. The peace of God is the promise. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I have a command that has some pretty specific things. Do not worry about anything, command number one and prohibition, but in everything with prayer and petition, in by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request. The command is to let your request be made known to God. So instead of worrying about something and internalizing it, as we say, you need to externalize it to God. You need to tell him about it. But he already knows. It says make known. That's a contradiction to my theology. I already know he knows everything. Your theology is, is, is uh, anemic. It's less dependent on God's word than it should be. God's word says that you are supposed to let these things be made known to God. If you don't say them to him, then you're not letting them be made known to him. And so that's the job that you have been given. See, it's beautiful. I've got this problem. I can't, I've bitten my nails down to the quick. I've got bloody fingertips. I'm just in a mess. I'm in total disarray. I can't think about anything else but this one thing that's got me driven toward this anxiety. And God says, first of all, No, you don't have a right to that. Don't do that. And then he gives you a job to do. You need to let him know what you're worried about. You need to talk to him about it in your urgent specific requests. And you need to do that from a context of thanksgiving. And this is the part where the, oh, God, help doesn't really uh, get to thanksgiving. Oh, God, help. That's not really the prayer that we're talking about. Oh, God, who has saved me by your grace. And by the way, thank you for that for that grace that you've shared with me. Thank you for the privilege of coming to your throne of grace. Thank you as we mature in our thinking for the hardship that I'm facing because what you said you'd do with it. Thank you for the Red Sea that my back's up against and I'd really like for you to deliver me, but thank you for the, thank you for the opportunity to be on a roller coaster at this moment. Sometimes that's the thanksgiving. I thank you for the hardship because I know what you've said you'd do with it. 2 Corinthians 9, 11, and 12 
that passage about the giving to the, um, for the support of the Macedonians, you'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. It's not to the Macedonians. It's for the benefit of the, of the poor that the Macedonians are participating in this ministry. You'll be enriched, he says, in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So what he's... In, I, I want to grab the paragraph because it's not fair um, to read it without a little bit of context. Second Corinthians 9. <clears throat> all right. He said, God is able to make all grace abound to you in verse 8, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. It's one of those places where God tells believers that we are not supposed to be reservoirs or granaries, but we're distribution hubs. We're, we're um, conduits of his resources, that kind of idea. And so he says, as is written, he's scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And so now he who supplies seed to the sower, so he's calling them sowers to go spread the seed. So who, who provides the seed? God. And he provides bread for food. He'll supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So he's telling the Corinthians who are immature that this is part of how it works, that the offering that you committed to, that we're all pledging and we've pledged something and you've, you've got, we're going to come around and pick it up for the poor saints. This offering is a, something that God is providing for you to do and it's a ministry and the consequence of this ministry Verse 11, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. What does it mean enriched for liberality? If you become the conduit God wants you to be, then God continues to make you a successful conduit for his throughput. You become that distribution node, and he continues to resupply you for all liberality. That's what he's talking about. In other words, you and I become willing participants in God's work, and he sees, okay, uh, we need to fill him back up so he can continue to do the work. That's the idea. And that will cause thanksgiving to God for those who receive the benefit. And you and I can thank him for participation in the ministry. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but also the ministry of this service is overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. So not only are we as believer priests caring for one another by this distribution of, of the offerings that God has given uh, us resources, we've given them back to him for the taking care of the saints, but also this ministry is a corporate exhale of gratitude for the grace God has shared with us. So all those people you're supporting are going to be singing God's praises for his provision. And so it's a double hit. You're getting two things done. You're killing two birds with one stone in your, in your giving. That's the argument, the rationale. But I just wanted to point out that's Eucharistia. That's the thanksgiving that will be offered to God there in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now that you know that the word of God in the New Testament on thanksgiving is really based on God's grace and that God's grace is an initiative that is prior to our response to it in gratitude. Now that you know that we're supposed to, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, give thanks for everything, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, we're supposed to give thanks at all times for all things, you should have a good theological answer to how that can be so. How can I be grateful to God in the middle of harsh circumstances and difficult trials? How can I be, be thankful to God when it hurts, when something awful happens that uh, may well be a test of my faith in him? How can I be grateful to God when I'm suffering? 
And the answer is that I'm not only suffering. I'm not only facing these hardships. That's the thing I'm thinking about. That's the thing that my attention is focused on. That's the thing that's in my perspective. The truth is that if I zoom out from that thing that's really hurting to the big picture, I also have Christ. I also have the Holy Spirit. I'm also promised a resurrection body, all the things that God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. These eternal things never change, and therefore they're always a basis for our joy and for our thanksgiving. Well, we couldn't talk about the classic American Christmas novel, classic Christmas novel, without talking about the classic, the classic Christmas film. Another Christless presentation of Christmas. Another way of saying bad thing happens, we pray, good thing happens, kind of, kind of a story. And you have redemption without the Redeemer. And the most telling part of it to me, I love this story, I love this movie. I've got friends that hate it. I've got friends that love it. It's a great movie. Don't watch it in color. You can get it in color. Um, that's, I'm a legalist about this. Don't watch this movie in color because Frank Capra was a genius, apparently, in how he set up the, the, the shading of things. And when they colorize it, they ruin all that work. So you have to watch it in black and white. And even if your kids are really strict about that, they, they don't want to watch black and white, give it about 45 minutes. They'll be hooked. They'll, they'll, they'll figure it out. But it's just a beautiful thing, what Frank Capra did. 1946, uh, oh, is it morning in America in 1946, right? We're back, we're back, and we're getting back to work, and, and we're trying to put the pieces back together and figure out life this side of the, the threat and the juggernaut of the, the Nazis are destroyed, and the, the, we didn't have to send the million soldiers to go be killed in Japan um, because of the success out in New Mexico and... <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that the Americans in 1946 are super excited. You know, James Stewart, was uh, he retired from the reserves as a brigadier general in the Air Force uh, Reserves. And um, anyway, this classic Christmas, the classic Christmas film, is another exercise in basically a human good portrayal. It really is. It's about, um, please don't do that at all, ever in this room at all. It's about the the thought that uh, one good turn deserves another, basically. That's the message of It's a Wonderful Life. And I, I, you know, I'm going to say, talk about it 80 years after it was made. So hopefully it's not a spoiler for you. Um, it's not ghosts in this case, but it is a spirit being, it's an angel. Clarence, odd body is the angel that comes upon Jimmy Stewart uh, threatening to kill himself. Um, he didn't know he's threatening anybody. He just gets ready to kill himself after the worst prayer in all of world history. I'm not a praying man, but if you're there, I need help. I need help by golly. That's the worst, dumbest prayer of all time. And Clarence is like the dumbest angel, apparently the way the story portrays it. So he shows up in the answer to a dumb prayer. But anyway, um, I'm being cynical about what they've done here, but it's a sweet homey thing that happens. But he's visited by this spirit, and what happens? What's the redemption in the story? If you think about it, until the last three minutes of the movie, there is no redemption of his circumstance. Uncle Billy has given $8,000, which in today's money is like $8 trillion or something. I'm just kidding. It's, eight, it's a lot of money. He's given the deposit for the week for the building and loan to the, the one person in town that would steal it from him and ruin him, Mr. Potter, the evil, vile uh, Mr. Potter, the weasened old spider. And, um, 
And so they're going to go bankrupt and, and Mr. Potter's going to get his way and finally get the building and loan and shut it down and put everybody back in his slums. So um, capitalism as it's at its worst, where we're, um, we're just uh, trying to exploit people and not treating them as God's image bearers. And, um, and, and capitalism is God's design of protection of private property, but we're not supposed to exploit people uh, through usury and so forth. And so um, nevertheless, you, you have this, this mistake that gets made, and then um, Jimmy Stewart has this encounter with Mr. Potter, and he says, uh, what do you have for collateral if I get, bail you out of your, your mess? And he says, I've got a, a life insurance policy with $500 equity, and I've only paid 500 bucks off the principal of this premium thing, and there's, but it's worth $15,000 on my death. And Mr. Potter, of course, says, well, you're worth more dead than alive. And so Jimmy Stewart goes out, gets punched by the, 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 the teacher's husband, that is the teacher of his little daughter, and uh, finds himself at the bridge about to jump in the water. What is the redemption in the story? It's that Clarence, listening to Jimmy Stewart rattle on, says, okay, so we'll pretend that you've never been born and we'll show you what your life would be like. It's the same as a Christmas carol because Jimmy Stewart in his desperation doesn't see himself. He doesn't see what he needs to see about his life, about the big picture. $8,000, I'm going to be bankrupt. I'm going to prison. I've got a family. I've got five kids. My wife loves me, and she's a wonderful woman training my children. This is a great situation. And God is, God, and, and really, let's put it into a Christian frame, God is God, and I have a relationship with him, and he loves me, and he sent his son to die for me. And he who didn't spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Right? Now, the movie doesn't go there, but it should have. But anyway. The point is that um, when Jimmy Stewart realizes how awful it is that his children never existed, that the people that his brother would have saved never got killed, that his brother drowned in the water, because all the things that Jimmy Stewart learns, for, I'm sorry, that um, uh, George Bailey learns, when he learns the alternative to his existence and how awful it is, for, and all the lives that he touched and all the impact that he had, that's when he comes to himself and says, um, this is horrible, bring me home. And when he wakes up and the vision is over and it's back to the circumstance that he started with, that he's in debt, he's going to go to prison, um, and, and he's in this great disaster, he's jumping up and down screaming for joy. I'm going to prison, ain't it great? Remember this part of the story? And you're like, oh, that's it. He now has not a changed circumstance, but he has a better perspective. And that's the, that's the redemption in the story. Now, of course, they then pour it on at the end because the whole town brings in donations and they get him out of debt. And, um, and his brother shows up and tells him he's the richest man in town and all that. And Clarence gets his wings. But the point is, the perspective is the reason we enjoy the story. And it's the same for the Christmas carol. It's the same for uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It resonates with us because we don't take into account what we have. We don't think about how rich we are. And in a human viewpoint frame of what's well, great that I have a family, it's great that I have uh, friends, right? What is Clarence's little inscription in the, in the Tom Sawyer? He says, he says a man is never penniless who has, no, who has friends or something. Uh, friends are a source of wealth is the great kind of moral to the story. Boy, I'd say the moral to the story is perspective. 
perspective about life is really the issue. And this is what I want to show you. The world loves Christmas Carol. They love It's a Wonderful Life, if they have any soul. (laughs) They love the idea of the redemption from perspective and appreciating your children and and not hating them and not being nasty to them, but loving them and, and having them. But let's zoom out a little bit further to eternal life, to righteousness imputed from God, to the word of God that we, we can read and know the things of God because he's provided them for us. We appreciate Christmas Carol and it's a wonderful life more than most because our constant attention to God's word is constantly reminding us of our rightful perspective. We don't have spirits coming to us at night. We don't have Clarence Oddbody helping us see what would happen if we were never born. We see the truth of the riches of God's grace every time we open the Bible. And we have that redemption moment where we say, oh yeah, the circumstance is what it is and it's not gonna change. But my perspective about it, this is a wonderful circumstance I'm in. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our Father, we thank you, as we always do, for your grace, for your word, for the challenge of it, to be grateful. Thank you that it is always antecedent grace that draws our gratitude. And that when we just give lip service to thanks and we just say, thank you, we're not thinking about what riches we have, what you have done for us because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, let us be exponents of your grace every time we open our mouths to say thank you and bless our families with witness from us that we love you, that we're grateful to you, that we are rich eternally in your son. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.